standing. We'll do that instead of the up-downs. Some squats are good, too. But let's welcome Mr. Ostrand up here to give us our message this morning. Go ahead and open your Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Mr. Falk, you ain't glasses. Mine just broke, so we'll do the best we can. Okay, it's, it's it good to be here. I was just going to say one thing. While you guys were singing the first song, uh, Only a Holy God, it's interesting how things intersect because uh, this is my 16th year at Nebraska Christian. Um, when I first came here, my oldest daughter was a sixth grader, and uh, she's grown up. She's married. She has two kids, and actually, she was here last night, strangely enough, and uh, my grandkids, we sat over here and watched the games for a while, and before we went to bed last night, Jackson, he's two, he has a little kid's microphone, and that's the song he was singing. Uh, I was trying to sing with him, Only a Holy God. He doesn't know all the words, but there's, there's a blessing that I'm experiencing right now as a grandpa that I had no idea that I would be experiencing by having my daughters go through NC and just be surrounded by chapel speakers and uh, holding the word of God high. Um, we're not a perfect school. <laughs> it's because you have very imperfect teachers, we have imperfect students, we have imperfect parents. But that doesn't change our mission. Our mission is to provide a Christ-centered education. And when we fail, we, we, we try to improve. We acknowledge sin, we repent of it but our only hopes in Christ. So anyway, just a kind of interesting full circle uh, observation. Um, we're in Mark 11, as you well know. We're in a series through the book of, of Mark, the gospel of Mark. And uh, this can be puzzling. So I don't know if we have any science people or any, you know, thinkers who like to solve puzzles. But at first reading, if you haven't read this before, you could come away thinking, like, what are we talking about? And so uh, in the next few moments, hopefully we can, can gain some clarity um, of what Jesus is saying. So Mark um, 11, I want to actually start in verse 11, which overlaps one verse from last week. And uh, it's a little bit of a lengthy passage, so stay with me here. Um, and let's, let's read through it. And I'll see if I can keep my glasses on. <clears throat> verse 11 of Mark 11. And he, Jesus, entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came to, uh, from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again and his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. 
and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father who also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pause for prayer for just a moment. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it teaches us and instructs us. We just pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see the wonders of your law. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, at, at first reading, if you don't know what this passage is about, you could conclude, you could conclude that Jesus is an angry botanist or an arborist. He was talking to a tree. That's weird, right? I mean, who, who goes up and talks to a tree? Or you could say that he had some different decorating ideas for a temple. He's like, no, no, this isn't right. And he knocks all the stuff down. And I'm guessing if you went home, back to the dorm, and you started knocking down desks and chairs and tables, and I'm guessing your parents wouldn't say, ah, Christ-like behavior. That, that would be confusing. And then... When the scribes and Pharisees ask a question, Jesus doesn't flat out just say, oh, I'll, I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing this. He asks them a question, and they are stymied. What is he doing? What is he teaching? This could be considered as a puzzling passage, but I think it's a gracious passage. It's for our benefit. It's for our good. And so the question is, do we understand it? I'll do my best to try to, to guide us through. <clears throat> but if you want something to kind of have a framework, I, I have three things that I think we can glean from this passage. The first one, and they all deal with dangers, the danger of spiritual 
fruitlessness or spiritual unfruitfulness. There's a danger of spiritual fruitlessness. The second is a danger of faithlessness. And the third is the danger of questioning God's authority. So if you want it short, fruitlessness, faithlessness, and questioning God's authority. That's what we're going to look at. The beginning, verses 12 through 14. Um, and maybe even backing up to 11, it says, Jesus went into the area of the temple and he looked around. And he took in what was going on. And we have to understand that to go into Jerusalem... To go into the temple, it's the center of religious life. It's kind of the, the apex, the epicenter, the, the place where the Jewish faith is practiced, where scribes who have been taught and have learned the Old Testament are going to teach. And in that process, Jesus takes a look around, and as he sees it, I think we start getting an idea of what he's found. A fruitless tree. Jesus goes to the tree from a distance, and from a distance it looks good. It's full of leaves, but he was hungry, and he was looking for some of the first fruits that come before the leaves, and then when the leaves are fully grown, then the, the big fruit comes later, okay? And this is Passion Week. This is the week of what we would call Easter, okay? And so in the process of this, he goes to the tree, and there is no fruit, Theologians often call this a symbolism, a prophetic symbolism. So if you have paid attention in your history classes, if we're talking approximately 33 A.D. right now, what's going to happen to Israel in about 40 years? Rome. Rome is coming in. And there's a future emperor who's leading the charge. His name is Titus. And they're going to destroy the temple. And the temple area was really amazing. It's the second temple that Israel had built. And it's an amazing structure. And they're going to knock it down. And Jesus even prophesies in the Gospels. He says, not one stone is going to be left standing. And people are like, wow, really? Because this is a pretty amazing structure. So oftentimes what we see is we see... In the Old Testament, in Hosea, in Jeremiah, Israel is either referred to as a vine or a, a fig tree or, or, or like a, a grapevine, okay? There's a symbolism there, okay? Um, you know, if, if you think about it, if you see a little kid who's got a lot of spirit, you know, I say, boy, that kid's a spitfire. Well, they don't really spit fire. It's an expression. So many times in the Old Testament, God refers to Israel as a fig tree or a vine. It's a metaphor for the people of Israel. When he goes into the temple, what did Jesus see? And I want to just ask you a question to think about right now. If, if Jesus were to incarnately walk in to our campus, if he were to walk into chapel today, right now, as we are at least corporately trying to look at God's word, what would he see? Would he see people uh, trying to finish up English homework right now? 
What do you see people finding a soft place to lay their head so they can sleep through chapel? What do you see people who sit by other people for the sole purpose of they don't care, and that way I don't care, and we can sit together? I don't like sitting by people who take lots of notes. It makes me feel guilty. Would he see that? What would he see at a basketball game at Nebraska Christian? How, what would he see among our players, our coaches, our fans, our elementary students? What would he see? Well, he saw the temple, and he said, this tree has no fruit. The first century temple was a center of religious life, and it was supposed to be a house of worship and a house of prayer. It was a place where people were called to obedience and reverence for God. But that's not what he saw. He saw legalism. He saw ceremony. And he saw ritual. And he saw hypocrisy. Everything that was supposed to be at the temple wasn't there. And he equates it to a fig tree that has no fruit. On the tree, he found nothing but leaves. Now, Mr. Falk, if I'm not mistaken, yesterday gave a charge in the hallway reading from Galatians 5, and it talked about what are the evidences of the Spirit of God indwelling a human being. And some of those you've memorized, it's, well, it's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, all those things. They're attributes that are consistent with God's nature. really borrowing from a sermon. Many of my men of vision guys have heard it, some of you a couple of times. But Ray Comfort says, oftentimes if you see someone who at least publicly is claiming to be a Christian, but they have no fruit, they try to impress you with branches and leaves. The t-shirt I wear, the places I go, but there's really nothing of evidence of the Spirit of God. And so we try, to, we try to fake it. We try to fake it. When I first came to NC, our headmaster, <laughs> it's strange, on his table in his conference room had plastic fruit. You know, like for decoration purposes, like a fake banana, fake orange, and it looked kind of real. And I thought, does he really like to decorate with you know, fruit. And he's like, no, it's a reminder to himself and to others. Every day he would look at it and say, am I faking it? Do I have fake fruit? Am I pretending to love people that I really don't love? Am I pretending to have joy when actually I have none? And so ultimately what we're going to find, the only way to have such fruit is to abide in Christ. So that he found nothing but leaves. There was an impression of fruitfulness, but it wasn't there. And that described the people of Israel at this time. If you remember Mark chapter 7, a couple chapters back, there was a passage in verse 6 and 7 where he said, quoting, Jesus quotes Isaiah and he says, Isaiah was right when he pro prophesied about you, hypocrites, as it is written, 
These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Years ago, there was a singer, I think he's still around, but he doesn't sing much anymore. His name was Steve Camp, and he had a song. He says, our worship is noise. Our music is noise. Our worship is play when we hold on to a life of sin. I've never forgotten that. Are we just playing a game? Because that's what Israel was doing. They were playing church. But there was no reverence. There was no obedience. It was rules, ceremonies. So that's a fruitless tree. The second point, a faithless temple. The temple was actually a place supposed to be of prayer and worship, and instead it was corrupt and profane. Because animals were needed for the sacrifice at the temple, some people traveled a long ways for sin offerings and guilt offerings and those kinds of things. And so what they would do is they would bring animals with them. But that was kind of dangerous because if you lived a long ways away and you brought an oxen, a little tough to travel with an oxen or a goat or a sheep. But then here's the worst part. If you got to the high priest, he would look at your offering, and if it wasn't considered to be unblemished, then you couldn't use it. So you brought that ox all that way for nothing. And then what do you do? Well, we actually have a few animals here for sale. And so I didn't realize this until I was reading some of the commentaries, but the high priest was in charge of examining the animals and then his family would be in charge of providing animals. And so what the, the high priest did is he made a lot of money. He's like, no, your, your goat's no good. You'll have to buy one of ours. And they would charge high prices for those animals. Or sometimes it'd almost be like the New York Stock Exchange. Only so many brokers have seats around this table, and you got to pay to be a broker at the exchange. So then people would say, hey, we'll pay you, high priest, because we want to sell stuff to these people. Basically extortion. In the process of that, the other requirement was to pay a temple tax. You had to have money for all the services of the temple. I did a little bit of calculating of what would it cost? Well, it talks about a half shekel. I, that didn't mean much to most of us because we don't know what shekels are worth. But there were money changers there. And there's a reason why Jesus turned tables over. <laughs> because these money changers, people would come in and they would have Greek currency or Roman currency. But the high priest says, we, we can't have that. You have to get... Jewish currency. So what he, he would do is these money changers, they would say, well, we'll take your Greek or Roman currency and we'll then exchange it for a fee. So just, just think about it real simple. If you, you got 10 bucks of Roman currency, okay, you got Caesar's picture on it, and then you give it to the temple exchange and, and they're going to take 10%. So he'll land you back $9 equivalent of 
the Jewish currency that had to be used for the temple tax. They're making a killing. The, the tax itself would be a, today, every male 20 and over who went to the temple would have to pay between 50 and $75 to come in and offer your sacrifice and then buy a goat or a lamb at a higher price. That, that's, that's what's going on. And so that's, do you see why Jesus says, you have taken a house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of robbers. That's not the intent of the temple. It's not what should be going on here. And zeal for his father's house consumes him. My house should be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it into a den of thieves. Verse 17. So, we started with a fruitless tree, but not only is it fruitless, and Jesus calls it out, they then go away. Bethany's about two miles away from Jerusalem, probably stayed at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus's house. They come back the next morning, and what's up with the tree? Peter is astounded because he said, Lord, that tree that you cursed, it's dead. From the root up, it is dead. It's a withered tree. It's interesting because as you look through Mark, there's lots of miracles. There's casting out demons. There's healing of people who are sick. It's calming of storms. Everything is a transformative or a constructive miracle except this one. You're taking a live, healthy tree, at least in appearance, and he curses it. And the next day, it's dead. Peter's shocked at the severity of the judgment upon the tree. But, but if you think about it, what a kind and gracious thing to only curse a tree. Because remember, what does the fig tree symbolize? What's going on at the temple. Can you imagine? Jesus would have had every right to strike dead the people who were mocking God. Stealing, making profit from religion. And instead, he destroys, he kills a tree. The question that came through my mind as I was reading through this, am I representative of a withered tree? Am I looking like I got branches and leaves, but no fruit? And if that's the case, it's a gracious thing that God is long-suffering because if that's the case, he, he struck down this tree and it yielded nothing. John 3, 17 and 18. Most of us are very familiar with John 3, 16, but I want you to think about these. Just listen. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed the name of God's one and only Son. If you want to distill what's going on at the temple, they do not believe that Jesus is God's Son. They do not believe He is the Messiah. And yet they have evidence after evidence after miracle after miracle, and they say, we will not. We will not bow our knee. We will not acknowledge 
the fact that the Messiah has come? Jesus has a strange response. Well, Peter is so astounded by, look, the tree that you cursed, it's dead. He says a strange thing. He says, have faith in God. Why does he say that? Have faith in God. I think Peter's astounded by a tree that one, one day was green and lush and the next day is brown and dead. But ultimately, I think Jesus is reminding him, <laughs> God is the creator of the universe. He gives each of you life and breath today. And that's a gracious thing. But, but it could be demanded of us right now. He is in control of all the universe. He has authority. He is God. And in the process of this, I think he's reminding them, because on Friday of this week where he's talking to them, he's going to be crucified. He knows his disciples are going to go through some really, really uncertain times. And he's just reminding them, have faith in God. Not that your faith needs to be super strong. The object of your faith is strong. And if you think about historically, where has God shown similar miraculous evidences of his power? Uh, you ever heard of David, Goliath? You ever heard of Joseph who was sold and left for dead? And God raises him up to save the people of Israel during a famine? Abraham and Sarah? Can you imagine going to the care home in Central City and finding a married couple who are 100 years old and then asking them, so tell us about your children and grandchildren. And they say, we were never able to have children. And then to hear, oh, she's expecting. She's expecting a little boy. They're going to name him Isaac. Do you see what Jesus said? He says, have faith in God. He is the God of the universe. And you think that a tree dying is a big deal? Well, I think Peter probably got the message because if you think a little bit later on, after Christ's resurrection, ascension to the right hand of the Father, during the Acts of the Apostles, Peter and John... And Acts 3 are met by a guy who's been lame. He was born lame and he couldn't walk. Scripture tells us he's about 40 years old. And he says, could you give me something? And they tell him, well, we don't have any money, but stand up and walk. Who says that? Well, I think they had faith in the God who has control over disease and sickness and storms and plants and animals and humanity and eternity. And they just said, rise up and walk. And he did. We serve a big God. And many times, I got to be reminded of that. Because I think, if you really boil it down, the way I think, the way I behave, is apparently I think I have to be God. I have to control every situation. I have to control every outcome. What a foolish thing. A finite man whose only heartbeat continues because God is gracious, and I think I have to 
control things? Jesus says, have faith in God. This is just, a, I thought it was a helpful quote. It's, it's a, from Pastor Alistair Begg. He says, those who trust God for the right things in the right way can trust that God will always make the right response. Those who trust God for the right things in the right way can trust that God will always make the right response. But Jesus gives a warning as he's talking about this idea. And, he, and some people get hung up on the idea of like, hey, tell this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea. I think what we're seeing here is there's no limit to what God can do, even though we put limits on God all the time in our minds. But he says, when you pray, have faith. But he says, if you have something against someone else, take care of that. Because one of the greatest hindrances to spiritual growth are three things. If you feel like, you know what, I really don't feel like I'm growing. I really don't feel like I'm abiding in Christ. This might be one of the problems. One problem could be anger. Your anger with some, you're angry with someone, or you're angry maybe even at God. Immorality. What are you viewing? What are you thinking about? What are you listening to? Jesus says, your prayer life is going to be hindered greatly if we are feasting upon the things of this world that are profane. And the last thing he says is an unforgiving spirit. If you have something against someone, go to them and be reconciled. So check your life. If you feel like your prayer life is kind of hanging by a thread, is it anger, immorality, or an unforgiving spirit? As we get to the end of the passage here, Jesus' authority is questioned. And if you think about this, the scribes ask this question, by what authority are you doing these things? If you were to put it maybe in our vernacular today, who do you think you are? We have our system here. Where'd you go to school? What kind of a degree do you have? Because Jesus is, he doesn't have credentials like the, the religious teachers do. And I think they're a little miffed that he's turning over tables and saying, you're turning this into a den of robbers, this temple area. The bottom line, the Pharisees and the scribes, they're not much different than we are today in that we typically don't like people telling us what to do, especially in spiritual matters. Yesterday, we... Uh, excuse me, Monday, we had a meeting, and uh, Dr. Etherton said something that is directly related. He said, God destroyed my life in a good way. <laughs> uh, C.S. Lewis says that Jesus Christ is the transcendental interferer. In other words, he does things. He works in our life in ways that make us unsure, uncomfortable, because when we're unsure and we're uncomfortable, we tend to abide in Christ. And when we think we've got it all figured out, 
we tend to keep him at arm's length. So they say, what authority are you doing this? His answer, let me ask you a question. John the Baptist, his baptism, was it from heaven or from man? Basically, he's, he's using John the Baptist as a substitute for himself. The scribes are in a tough spot because if they look at Jesus and he says, am I really the son of God? Am I, have I come from heaven, from the right hand of the Father to this earth? Well, then they better bow down and they better worship and they better listen to him. But if they say, no, you're just some guy, you're just a carpenter's son, then they got a problem explaining calming storms, healing diseases, <laughs> cursing fig tree. They can't explain that. So ultimately, their problem is not an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. That's, that's our problem. It's not intellectual. It's moral. Our relationship with Christ is ultimately an authority issue, and it will always be revealed by the choices you make, and the words that you use. Who has authority in your life? And if it's you, I can guarantee you what that's going to sound like, and I can guarantee it's what it's going to look like because you are the one who is trying to be an authority. But if indeed Christ is the authority in your life and you refer and defer to him in all things, it will change how you talk, it will change how you walk, it will change who you hang out with, it will change everything. Because living things grow, dead things don't. We're getting near time, the bell has, has rung, but I want to just finish with... <clears throat> with one passage. You don't need to take time to look at it. It's, it's an interesting passage. Um, much of the Jewish world rejected Christ, and they ultimately were yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And even when Pilate says, hey, I, every year I give one prisoner a free pass, you want Jesus? And they're like, no, no, we want, we want Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. It was the ultimate rejection. In Romans 11, it's an interesting passage. It says this, If some of the branches, Judaism, okay, had been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches are broken off so that I could be grafted in, granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. That's, that's an interesting passage, but... I've read that before, but last night I went to YouTube, and I'm like, what exactly is grafting? And I, I could have kind of told you, but honestly, I didn't know this really worked. 
So I saw an eight-minute video of a guy who took a little tree about that big around as far as its trunk, and he cut it off. I'm like, what? And then he goes to trees that he likes. He says, some of my best producing trees, and he starts cutting off these little tips of the branches. So maybe all you science people, you're like, you're well aware of this. But So then what he does is he takes these little scions, the little tips from the branch, he takes the bark off, he splits the bark of the actual tree, could be a completely different tree, and he shoves them in, he tapes them, and he puts a sealant on top, and he says, this is going to replicate the tree that it was taken from. To me, that was a picture that, why is this a gracious passage? Because in 33 AD, the Jewish people said, you're nothing special. And they were dispersed across the globe. Their temple was destroyed. But who is that wild olive shoot? It's most of us in this room. People from Congo, people from China, people from Thailand, people from America. But we're not really from here because all our ancestors came from Germany or Sweden or whatever. We weren't Jews. I don't come from people of the promise. And yet, by their unbelief, the gospel has spread across the world. And we have hope in Christ because if indeed we have been grafted in. So, in conclusion, I just want to read one passage that illustrates this from John 15. It's a common passage. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. There were people who were bearing no fruit. And there was a response by God. So the question we have today is, am I abiding in Christ? Because he is the source of life. In him we have forgiveness of sins. In him we have the Spirit of God to say no to unrighteousness. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Pruning. I don't know. Uh, we, we have two fairly public, I think, probably prunings going on. Mr. Z can't walk right. He's dealing with a, a challenge. We know that. Julie's not walking. She's got crutches. Everybody is going through something. And sometimes it's more visible. And sometimes it's more painful. And sometimes we deal with death and sickness and loss. In this world, you're going to have many troubles. We're told that. So in the end, it comes down to this. As we go through those times, will we abide in Christ? And he has promised that when we do, we will bear much fruit. If we become bitter and angry and say, why do I deserve 
what I'm going through in my family or whatever? Will we be cast off because of our unbelief? Israel at that time was ripe with unbelief. They were fruitless, they were faithless, and they really didn't want God to be in charge. They wanted to be in charge. So as we end, I have two questions for whatever time you have left for your D groups. How is Jesus cursing of the fig tree and cleansing the temple a gracious reminder to each of us? How is the cursing of the fig tree and cleansing of the temple a gracious reminder? And then what are some specific ways? How how do we abide in Christ? What are some things we can do to set our minds on things above and not on things of this earth? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it instructs us. We just pray that you would go with these students, that they would bear much fruit, that they would, you would increase their faith, that you would draw them close to yourself, and that you would be glorified in all things. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, you are dismissed to go to D groups and then be sensitive to time. I think 9, 10 is where you guys start second hour. So uh, get to your D